0: Um, but before I just jump right into what I feel like God has for us today, um, thank you, Michael. I, I just uh, this week we lost um, a man very dear to many of us, uh, Gordon Parsons, um, and it's a blow. Yet another blow in the midst of this. But I mean, it, Gordon w- w- was special to many of us, and we loved him dearly. And I just. He leaves behind his wife, Robin, uh, three girls, uh, Sarah, Emily, and Grace, uh, two grandkids, um, and two brothers. One of his brothers, Ron, uh, went here, another brother, Wes. And I just want to, together as a congregation, can we just pray for this family? Um, I, I, I just want to lift them up together. So God, um, this is so heavy, and I'm not going to lie, God, I'm, I, it is discouraging to see, God, yet another life lost. And God, I thank you so much that he does know you, and I know that he is with you. Um, The pain is still here with us, especially for his family, Robin, Sarah, Emily, Grace. And God, I pray that you and your spirit God, may you be more near and close to them than ever. I pray that you will lift them up, encourage them. Show us as a church how we can surround them. God, whatever needs that they have right now, I pray, I know that you see them. Show us how we can be a part even of helping provide for them. But God, I, I know they're not alone, but man, grief feels so lonely. So may you lift them up. May you give them the ability to make, take the next step each day. And just when they feel like they can't take the next one, may you fill them again. And may you come alongside of them as they, they um, remember Gordon's life tomorrow. Uh, and there's a celebration of life service. God, may you be a part of every aspect of that. Filling the speakers um, and allowing it to be a safe place for all to process this grief. And for anyone in this church, God, who is close friends with Gordon, some for decades, I pray that you comfort them and guide them um, as they grieve. Thank you, God, that you are the God of life, and we know that he is enjoying eternal life. And for those here, may you bring your comfort, your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. if anybody, uh, if you knew Gordon or know the family, uh, the Celebration of Life service is tomorrow uh, at 3 p.m. at Granite United Church in Haverhill. Uh, there's multiple locations. Uh, it's the Haverhill location, um, 3 p.m. tomorrow. So thank you for all your prayers and support uh, of that family. All right, we're going we're gonna to jump right in now to uh, week three of this series, uh, Come Find Rest. But before I do... Um, have any of you ever been caught off guard by the feeling of being a total stranger or an outsider? Maybe you went to a party and you thought you'd know somebody only to find out you didn't know a soul there. Or maybe you went back to your hometown, which was used to be familiar, only to look around and realize you didn't even know where you are going anymore. <laughs> yeah, Shelby and I had that outsider feeling in a big way about eight years ago. Right after seminary, we were presented with an opportunity to go study for one further year at a university in Edinburgh, Scotland. And so we prayed about it. We thought, oh man, this will be an adventure. Let's, let's do it. I mean, how hard can it be? I mean, they speak English there, or at least a version of it, right? And, and like, we know something about the culture. We've watched all seasons of Downton Abbey. So we got this. And so summer of 2013, Shelby gave birth to our first child, Micah. And when she was two months old, we packed up seven suitcases and, and moved over there to, to Edinburgh. And at first, it was a vacation. Man, like Scottish pubs, castles, history, the works. But about a weekend, we had to leave our cozy Airbnb and find an apartment or flat, as they call it, of, their, of our own. And that's when reality hit. Because we were going to rent an apartment. Like, yeah, until you can rent this, you actually need a Scottish cell phone. Okay, go to the Scottish cell phone store. Yeah, before you can rent a Scottish cell phone, you need a Scottish bank account. Okay, go to the bank. Talking to them. And here's the exchange rate between the dollar and the pound. Like, oh, man. Now all of a sudden, all our reserves are cut into. It was kind of gave us a shocker of reality. Soon after that, we realized, oh, yeah, we don't have a car here either. So we had to get used to the Edinburgh bus system. Well, that became expensive fast. And so I said, all right, I'm going to buy a cheap bike. And that's how I'm going to get, you know, from where we lived to the school. Turns out this, they, they do the other side of the road thing there. I nearly got hit twice on the, <laughs> trying to bike my way around the town. It's like, okay, I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk. So even when it was raining, I walked most days. And most days in Scotland, it rains. So it was about a month in that all of a sudden the vacation feeling was gone. And I remember putting our baby to bed one night and Shelby and I just crashed on the couch and we looked at each other and said, what are we doing? Man, we are complete strangers here. Totally alone in this place. And the reason why I bring that up it's because I'm wondering. Now, eventually in Scotland, I will say, eventually in Scotland, we, we did learn to love the culture. Like we have zero regrets about going. And we learned to acclimate, right? And become Scots while we were there. But I do wonder how many of us, as followers of Jesus, have felt that same outsider feeling, but in our own land. And now, what I'm not saying is oh, look at how the culture has changed around us in terms of different ethnicities and people moving in. Is that hard? That's not what I'm saying. Or I think a diversity of culture and food and ethnicity and language, I think it's a beautiful thing. But what I am saying is that I don't think it's any secret that in New England and America has become increasingly secular in the way that we think and we live. Sociologists call America a post-Christian nation, which means on the ground level for everyday us, right, that feeling that we are the only Christ follower or Christian in our workplace, our family, in our schools, right, that's growing because there seems to be less, we know less followers of Jesus like us. And so we're living in this tension of being, wanting, to be, wanting to be faithful to Jesus, right, follow him in a world that doesn't know him. Now, a tension like that in Scotland was resolved by just becoming like the Scots, right? If we felt like a stranger, we'll just get to know it and acclimate. But followers of Jesus can't just become like the world, right? That's 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 to compromise who we are. And so we live in this tension of being in the world, but not of the world. And sometimes that tension is darn right heavy, is it not, and ways we try to resolve that, it's like, oh, well, like when, it's, when it's heavy like that, that's when we're tempted to say, you know what, I'll just take a step back and just make my faith private. I'll keep it to myself and try not to let anybody know. Or, you know, in the Bible Belt, everyone goes to church. Maybe I'll just move there. <laughs> but I didn't, that, was, that was a joke, but I, I don't... I don't know how many people, it's like, I said that yesterday. (laughs) Or how many times have I heard from discouraged Christians, can't Jesus just come back? I've said it. So in week three of this series, Come Find Rest, we're talking about the burden of darkness, which is really the tension we feel of living in a world that doesn't share our faith. You know, last week one of this series was the burden of shame. Last week, the burden of control. And this week, the burden or the tension of being in the world, but not of it. So, so what is this burden and how does it affect us? Well, answer number one. But then second, you know, when we have that feeling of loneliness, Or we're afraid of where the world is headed. You know, how can we, as Jesus says, come to him and learn from him? What do we do with this? And to answer these questions, we're going to look at a story in 1 Kings 19 about this amazing prophet of God called Elijah. And Elijah did a lot of incredible things for God. You know, the the man stood up. To the wicked King Ahab and Jezebel. He defeated prophets of Baal. He spoke the truth of God in a time when his own people, the Israelites, were walking away from God. But one day, the burden of darkness became incredibly heavy even for him. But how does God meet him in the midst of that loneliness That discouragement. And how might God want to meet you in the same way? 1 Kings 19. And if you want to pull out one of the blueback Bibles, we're on page 285. 285 together, 1 Kings 19. Now, this is a bit of a longer passage than we'd normally read together because I want you to see the whole story. That's why we're reading it. Um, But as I do, the question I want you to to be answering in your mind is how does God meet him in the midst of his loneliness? Because we're going to look at that for our own lives as well. 1 Kings 19 verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets, that's the prophets of Baal, with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and then lay down again. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. And I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shephat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So, Lord, I pray that this story won't just stick in our minds, but that it will move into our hearts, that we will see the reality of who you are, not only here, but also today. God, may you speak to us. May you encourage and comfort and liberate all the things that your word does. So may we be open. In Jesus' name, amen. So, have you ever gotten to a place where you felt like darkness, sin, injustice in the world are just getting the upper hand? I now mean, we all have, right? Even the amazing prophet Elijah got that feeling. But what's interesting to me is even though he lived almost 3,000 years ago, the way he responds to the discouragement is very much the same way I tend to. How is it that this burden of darkness affected him and often affects us? You see, when darkness appears to be winning, it leaves us feeling hopelessly alone and looking for the quickest way out. Let's get a little context of this story, and then we'll look at our own context. So first, God called Elijah to be his prophet, his spokesman, in about ninth century BC. And it was during a time when darkness, sin, injustice seemed to be winning. But before Elijah, that's when Israel had the mighty kings David and Solomon. The nation was prosperous. Things were going great. Until after Solomon died, 930 B.C., a nasty civil war broke out, split the nation in two, to the southern part called Judah, and the northern kingdom referred to as Israel. And the kings in the north, they were evil men. Some killed the prophets of God. All oppressed their people for greed. Some even sacrificed their own children upon the altars of the false god Baal. And God says, Elijah, send you to that, bud. Right in the middle of that, especially during the reign of King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. And remember, this is a time, too, where many of the prophets of God have been killed. And so Elijah is one of the few left. Yet, he remains faithful. And God does amazing things. Like, for example, beginning of 1 Kings 17, God says, Elijah prophesied drought across the land. He does rain stops. And then in 18, he encounters 450 prophets of Baal. And he challenges them to a... I don't know, a sacrifice off? I don't know what you call this thing where, where they, have a, they have their altar, he has his, and who, who, whichever God calls down fire, that's the real God, right? Well, their God does nothing despite all their chanting and loudness, and Elijah's God, even though he put pounds of water on this, just pours down fire from heaven. Clearly the power of God is on display through this man and people cheer. And Yes, this is the one true God. After that, Elijah says, all right, rain again. And it does upon the land. And it's clear, oh man, through this guy, Elijah, the the power of God is working and pushing back the darkness. But when the adrenaline subsides, tiredness hits, loneliness sets in, That's when the lies often come. I guess you could say when we read 19, in the beginning of 19, you could say that Elijah's feet are back on the ground. He's by himself. Everybody's gone home. He's probably tired, hungry. And that's when the message from Queen Jezebel shows up saying, vowing on her gods that she will kill him. And thus we see a sharp turn, and the same man who challenged 450 prophets of Baal is now running for his life in fear from one woman. And I've always wondered, like, what happened here? Maybe, after such a clear display of God's power, maybe he was hoping that a mighty revival would break out in Israel. But then he turns around, and all he gets instead is another death threat for his life. And it's easy in those moments when we expect things to change and they don't, to wonder did anything I just do matter a lick? Did any, this change anything? Have you ever felt that way? You see, when, it's, when is it easiest? for Satan to slip his lies or his false promises past our defense of faith? When is that easiest? You know, when I'm in a worship service and we're singing, build your church, build your church, I'm like, he can do anything, right? Like any sort of lies, deception, any of these things, like just bing, 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 bing. You know, it's, it doesn't matter. My faith is big. But countless times, it's after I've got done preaching my heart out for a couple of services. everybody's gone home. I'm alone, I'm tired, I'm hungry. That's when I he- the thought hits my head. Do you think you really changed anything? Do you think anything's actually changing? And I bit that hook more times than I can count. Because you see, Satan's no dummy. He waits. Until we are weak and susceptible so that he can either entice us to sin or overwhelm us with the fear of darkness. I mean, think about it. In your own life, when are those moments like Elijah that you're most tempted to believe the false promises of Satan? When you're tired, alone, empty, late at night scrolling through your phone and seeing how beautiful everybody else's life is on social media— it's not really that beautiful, by the way. It's not. When you're watching the news, when someone you love made a bad choice again, when is it, do you know, when you find yourself most susceptible? And what makes it even more difficult is when we feel that discouragement and we see the, the presence and the work of evil in the world, all we have to do is look around and realize we live in a society where sin has been normalized. And it's easy to ask then, well, what's the point of believing anything can be different? And that's exactly where Elijah found himself God, I'm no different than any of my ancestors, so take my life, I'm done. And maybe you thought like Elijah, God, I've prayed. I've served you for years. I tried to raise my family to do the same. And now I do all of that. And it just seems like the, the, the darkness and evil and injustice just continues to grow in this world. Was it all in vain? And that's when we're most tempted to just want to draw the blinds, move back into a cave of our own, as doubt becomes darkness, fear a fortress, and God seems nowhere near. And if you've experienced that or something similar, man, you understand the burden of darkness that I'm talking about and what Elijah experienced. See, we all have weak moments when deception, discouragement, despair wants to drag us down, but Who is God in the midst of those moments? That's where we're going next. Because even on the darkest nights, do you realize Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary? How does God want to meet us in that? You see, God's grace meets us in our discouragement, in our loneliness, so that his truth can untangle the lies. You know, when we talk... We just talked about Jezebel, Elijah, but now God's entering the story. And this is when it starts to get good. See, and what is it that God has to remind Elijah? Who was God in the midst of his weariness? I want to lean, especially pay attention to this first one. This first one surprised me. First, God and his love addresses Elijah's practical needs. So afraid, Elijah is in the north part of Israel, right? Afraid, he heads south. He goes south. (laughs) And he goes all the way to the southernmost town in Judah called Beersheba. And there he decides he's going to leave his servant, his right-hand man, the guy who always has his back. He's like, I'm, see ya. Why is it that sometimes when we're despairing, we tend to move away from the very people who have our back the best? But then eventually exhausted, he heads into the wilderness and he sleeps. And what does God do? I think the fear had eaten at his appetite too. And so he is weak. And God shows up right there in the wilderness and feeds him not once, but twice. Twice. And this shows me that sometimes when we're discouraged, defeated, lonely, the first thing we need is a snack and a nap. I came to church for this? <laughs> That's not very spiritual. Right? But isn't it true? Yes, absolutely. But I want us to see that actually the snack and the nap are very spiritual things. Because by meeting his practical needs, God is saying, Elijah, I'm your provider. We looked at last week Psalm 127 too, which says that because God loves us, he gives us sleep. Right? Every time we put our head on a pillow and fall asleep, it is an exercise of trust that God's in control and we're not. Now don't use that as an excuse to sleep as late as you want though, right? Like I'm exercising trust right now, right? <laughs> Nuh-uh, uh-uh. But Jesus said even food is a gift from God. So every time... We choose to pray or thank God for our food before we eat. Is that not a spiritual moment? Are we not recognizing in that moment that even eating is an act of recognizing who God is? You see, we recognize that, that when we're lonely, we're afraid, we're discouraged. Like, yes, food and sleep can help. We know they're not the solution, right? Don't, don't eat or sleep your way into oblivion to try to get over this, right? But we recognize, we look through those things to the one who, who is who loves us and is providing for us. And when we can learn to see the love of God in the daily, ordinary things like food and sleep, oftentimes that clears our minds enough so that we see no matter how dark things are that he is with us. And until we can see God in the daily, the ordinary things, it is going to be difficult to walk with him. Sometimes we think God is just in the big, the pow, the wow, the worship service, at church, at small group. But what if he is right there with you It's your morning coffee, at your lunch break, as you put your head to go to sleep? And after meeting his practical needs, second, God invites Elijah to untangle his fear. So he sleeps and he eats, and then Elijah heads straight to the place where he knows where he can find God. And this is Mount Horeb. Another name of Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. All right, it's known by both. See, Horeb, or Sinai, is where God, or sorry, Moses, the great liberator, encountered God for the first time. It's also where the people of Israel, after being freed from slavery in Egypt, where God descended upon the mountain and gave them his law. And Elijah, in the midst of his confusion, just goes to where he feels like he can find God. Sometimes that's just what it is, guys. It's just in the midst of it, I'm just going to take a step toward where I know God is. And there God asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, do you think God already knows the answer to that question? Of course he does. But does Elijah know the answer to that question? Because fear clouds our ability to think clearly. Despair muddles our picture of reality. And so God is saying, Elijah, let's get honest. Let's get honest about why you've come. You know, I have a uh, prayer journal that I keep. And so many of my entries in this prayer journal are me answering the same question. Why are you coming to me, Kirk? And so many entries, man, I've had to work through fear, insecurity, anger, doubt, and if and I don't want you to read it, don't read it, but if you did, you would see Right, Like all, like so much of that is me working through those things. And it works for me because some, oftentimes fear clouds our ability but and distracts us. But when I, when I have to actively write, it helps me to focus so that I actually have to work through it. And now you may not be a journal person. That's totally fine. That may not be your thing. But when the darkness does feel heavy and burdensome upon you and fear, discouragement, doubt, How can you work through those things with God? Answering that question in prayer, why have you come here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And after meeting his practical needs, inviting him to pray through his fears, third, God speaks truth to Elijah in the language of grace, not judgment. After Elijah speaks, now it's his turn to listen. And this is the most important part. So God tells Elijah, all right, now I want you to stand up and pay attention. And this is odd. It's very odd to me, at least at first. Because he gets to the front of the cave and all of a sudden powerful winds all around. He says, but I'm not in that. And then there's an earthquake and a fire. And God says, I'm not, I'm not in that either. And he used to think, man, why is God faking him out like this? Like, What's the point of this? But then it hit me, when was the last time wind, fire, earthquake came to Mount Sinai? When God gave his people the law. See, each of these things were a symbol of God's judgment on sin. But after doing all of that, instead of judging Elijah's sin, God says, I'm going to come to you in a different way. And he knelt down to Elijah's level to speak to his tired, weary soul with a gentle whisper, a still voice. And the same God who spoke to Elijah came to our human level too. Not to overwhelm us with the judgment that we deserve, but with grace. And when we could not climb our way to him, Jesus came down into our dark world. And then he chose to climb the mountain called Golgotha, bearing the burden of your sin, our judgment. And when he breathed his last, an earthquake shook, for the judgment had been paid. The penalty had been paid. It was finished. And the amazing news of the Bible, of what God has done in Jesus, is that all those who believe and receive in what Christ has done for them, like you are forgiven. Your judgment has been paid. You stand before God. You can boldly instead of hiding your face. And to those who believe and receive, he's also promised his spirit, the spirit of truth. And he is the one who is that gentle whisper upon your heart, your mind, your conscience, affirming the truth to you, giving rest to your souls. He's not the spirit of fear, but of power, love, sound mind. That the same still voice that Elijah experienced that moment is the same voice that if you're a follower of Christ, you can experience every day because the spirit dwells within you. Is that not good? It's all grace, guys. It's all grace. And as God met Elijah in his weariness with grace, What did he speak to him, and what did he remind him, and what does he remind us? See, although darkness appears to be winning at times, God is still on the throne. We are not alone, and his purposes still stand for us and the coming generations. Yes, the world is dark, but God said, listen, I'm going to renew you, Elijah, but then I'm sending you back out. (laughs) <laughs> to, out of this dark cave, to be an agent of my light in the midst of this world. And in giving Elijah, he gives him fresh purpose, but his interestingly enough, his purpose is also reminders of who God is. I'm going to show you what I mean. See, first, no matter what kings may say or do, God is on the throne. That's reminder number one, but let me show you how, I got, how, how this teaches that. See, Elijah was sent out of the cave. And he says, first, I want you to anoint two kings, Elijah. Hazael over Aram and Jehu over Israel. Now, why does this matter? See, Aram was a nation that was a threat to Israel. And God said, by removing the previous king, I'm protecting my people. And the current king of Israel, King Ahab, is a threat to Elijah. He said, "But I want you to remove that king and put a new king in place. I'm protecting you. Elijah. And what reminder does this give us? That no matter what presidents, kings, celebrities, or powerful people may say or do in this world, there is still only one true God. And we worship him. And he is our mighty protector, our faithful provider, our wise father, our everlasting king. God is on the throne. And second, We are not alone. God God said, Elijah, I know it feels like you're the only one right now. He said, but I actually have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed their knee to Baal or kissed any idols. And to Trinity Church here north of Boston, we're not alone either. No way. I mean, look around in this room right now. Like this is in the midst of a pandemic and it's freezing outside and you still showed up. And some of you are probably a little depressed from last night, and you still showed up. <laughs> We're not alone, guys. You have people all around you right now who are leaning in to Christ, leaning in. And there, there are thousands of others across New England that we don't even see. And I know that COVID has complicated getting together these last weeks and years. And we all got to do what's necessary for our health. But please let me encourage you. If after you've done what you got to do, please come back. Please, not, not for my sake, not for Trinity's sake, but for each other's sake. Please lean into community because if this is to be a place where we learn something about the love of God, then that's something that we learn to show each other. And we can't show that to each other unless we know each other unless we're building relationships with each other. Loneliness should never win out in church because we have each other. And God intends his church to be a place where we build a rich community with Jesus at its foundation. And so I understand, man, do what we gotta do, but then lean in, then lean in. God is on the throne. We are not alone. And third, last, God's purposes still stand for us and the coming generations. God said, Elijah, you may think your labor for me is in vain. And all the Israelite national surveys may point to the fact that this is becoming an increasingly dark and secular society, a bell-worshiping place. But I'm telling you right now, Elijah, I already have somebody for you to anoint. Elisha of Shephat, to succeed you as prophet. And when we look around at public surveys, right? We, we, our logical minds say, man, it doesn't look pretty. But this reminds me that God is always raising up men and women, even right now, who will be filled with his spirit, who will seek to please God above all else, and will, who will speak his word for their generation. That God, there are always children of God in every generation who will shine like stars in the midst of a night sky. And here at Trinity, we have youth, we have kids, and we have babies yet to be born. And we have the privilege of modeling the way of Jesus to them, teaching them God's word, and equipping them to follow him too. I mean, can you imagine the kind of stories God has yet to tell through the coming generations? And I am so thankful that we have a children's ministry here who invests consistently in them and people who volunteer to be a part of that, some of you guys. But let me also say, don't wait for a program to be developed before we invest in the next generation. Because it's first a relationship, not a program. And programs are really just designed to make the relationships happen. <laughs> but don't, you don't need a program to invest in them. That we can look and see, God, who would you have me to invest in, get to know, show your love to? God's purposes never stop for us or the coming generations. He is on the throne and we are not alone. And when the darkness seems to have won, it is the still voice of God that is inviting us to step out into the light because he's never done. And there's a day coming, whether it's in our lifetimes or later, when Jesus will return. And when he returns, all darkness will bow before his glory In that day, good will be called good, and evil will be called evil. Conflict will come to an end, and all motives, sin, and justice in the world will be exposed before the judgment of our creator and almighty, righteous God. But all those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus, who have given yourselves to him, you will stand before that in a robe of brilliant white, And you'll be wearing that because it's by the grace of God that he paid the penalty of our sin. And it's by faith that we have trusted him and we have rested in his finished work. It's because of Jesus' work on our behalf, his sacrifice, that we can be confident that we will step into eternity where God will be our light and heaven and earth will be united as one and everything will be made right. And scripture makes it clear that day is coming. It is coming. But waiting isn't easy, is it? No. I get it. The events of the day, man, they stir up fear, discouragement, Darken fear, darkens our ability to see reality, and darkness makes us feel like there's nobody around me. But in those moments, how can we learn to come to God and entangle our fear with him? And after that, how can we then learn to listen? For many of us, it may mean literally turning off the noise around you, setting apart a daily time where you can be silent with God. And we're paying attention to that little voice upon our souls, the little voice in our minds that we know never contradicts God's word, but always comes to lift us up, fill us up, and invite us to step out into the light again. At times, I know the darkness seems to have won. But the still, quiet voice of God will be the voice that's always affirming, step out into the light again, because I'm not done. Stand with me, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this story. But we recognize this isn't just a story from 3,000 years ago. This is a story of what you want to do in each of our lives today. And that if anybody in here is just feeling burdened under the weight of just, man, ah, the, the evil in this world, the injustice in this world, the, the, the lies, the deception, if anybody is feeling that today, God, I pray that this will be an opportunity for them just to get honest with you. That instead of leading us toward our own caves, that God, that it, it'll be an opportunity that we see to learn how to be more honest with our God. And God, I pray that from that, you teach us how to listen. Man, I, I got a lot to learn when it comes to listening. But I pray, God, that you will show us and that we will learn to open your word, get to know your voice, and then get to know what it sounds like within our hearts, minds, souls. Thank you that you've not left us alone, that you've given us your spirit, your spirit of truth. And so may you encourage, strengthen, build up your church. In Jesus' name.